0: Hey, Really Good Friends, this podcast contains adult content and language. Listen with care. Hello Hello.
1: and welcome
0: to Historically Really Good Friends,
1: a queer history podcast.
0: I'm Rachel Craig
1: and I'm Jared Femblow.
0: And gobble gobble. Hello. Hi. Welcome to our second two of two Thanksgiving oh, episodes. Yeah. Welcome, ba, 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 Jared. Ba, ba, ba.
1: Gobble gobble. Welcome,
0: listeners.
1: Happy um, Almost Turkey Day.
0: Happy Almost Turkey Day. Happy Almost Macy's Thanksgiving Day.
1: Yeah. Great. Yeah. That's I don't the know m- important. That's part.
0: the holiday. And uh-huh. is the dog show on Thanksgiving Day too?
1: the dog show like who's the, dog show i think
0: i think there's like i don't remember if it's christmas like day bowl? or thanksgiving day no it's not the puppy bowl it is like a dog, like a you know how you have show dogs like comp- dog competitions like they just uh-huh. walk around in a circle and like look at their butts or whatever yes, and they're like yes, you're yes. the winner oh and i almost just said That happens wimbledon. on thanksgiving it's
1: not wimbledon
0: wimbledon is tennis tennis yeah so not it's dogs.
1: something like that it's the wimbledon of it's dog the,
0: shows w- Westminster Dog Show. Yes,
1: the Westminster Dog Show. You are absolutely that's correct. It. Is it. Is that a yearly, it's always on a holiday?
0: I believe so. I, and I'm pretty sure it's Thanksgiving because I'm pretty sure that's about when my family divides. And like, we do the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Then people are either cooking, watching the dog show, or watching football. Football. Ugh, and course. I'm not on the football team. No. So I'm not on a football team. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so. Well what happened to the football team you were coaching? You know. And then you start on you're the quarterback, you were the kicker.
0: Right. I'm I'm not on a football team because I'm coaching it because I used to be on the football team. So right. I'm retired from right. playing on the football team. To then coach. To then coach the team.
1: Mm-hmm. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um
0: first female head coach here.
1: Ever. I think. Ever That's in the me. history.
0: Yeah. So I that's an amazing accomplishment,
1: and we're so proud of you. And I can't Thank wait you. to cheer you on at homecoming.
0: Thank you. You know we make a lot of um, sports jokes, we like do- "haha, we don't play sports."
1: I think it's us compensating for <laughs> it one. Is. One sports permeate our culture. American Mm -hmm. US culture sports. It's like ride or die sports. And I like grew up in a town that was ride or die sports. And like Mm. I like quit every single sport I've ever played. And so it's just like a source of trauma. It's a
0: self-deprecating.
1: Yeah. We don't know anything about it. We don't know how to do it or Mm. not do it. Yeah. You know. And
0: Thanksgiving is a big, I feel like, sports event Mm -hmm. because there's nothing else really going on. So there's that but what I was going to ask you Jared okay because we started talking about the Thanksgiving Day Parade have you ever gone to the Thanksgiving Day Parade
1: no and okay I think if I ever had I would have had a panic attack and it would have mm. ruined the entire event I don't like crowds I don't like events yeah. I don't like that sort of that's not my vibe what about you have you been
0: that's fair. And no, I have not. And the reason I haven't is because I know people who have mm-hmm. and they not those people specifically, but they detail the precision similar to the Times Square ball drop. Mm-hmm. The precision and the dedication that people who attend those specific events need to have. And to me it doesn't feel worth it. And I'm talking about like no public restrooms, sleeping sleeping overnight, wearing a diaper. With your two small children, like watching them inflate balloons at four in the morning. And like that to me doesn't track. Like that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't
1: seem worth it. I think what would be worth it is like seeing, you know, like a balloon accidentally get loose and fly away, or like a balloon Mm -hmm. like bump into a building, you know? Like, I feel like. Something like that would be fun, but it's not guaranteed. So why not right. watch it from the comfort of your own home in your your sweatpants or whatever in your exactly. living room?
0: Exactly. And we get the opportunity to see all of that stuff. Like I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember from years ago, and um, one of the things that came up when I was researching like different topics for these Thanksgiving episodes, which this was like queer. Parts of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which by the way, they weren't. And it was was, like borderline offensive. And it was like borderline offensive. Some of the stuff they included, including the um, like tweet that went viral a few years ago because it was like this Spider-Man balloon, I think, like fell over onto a different balloon and looked like like it was eating its
1: ass. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, So
0: like we I don't have to be there at four in the morning when that happens. Twitter told me.
1: Right. You'll get the highlights of the Twitter memes, of the right. Twitter-verse. It's like, you don't need to spend the time in the cold and outside and on a no. dirty sidewalk. It's just not worth it. Yeah.
0: No, it's not. Plus, I always think about this with parades. Since Eddie and I were in Disney this past year and their whole thing is parades, That like, mm-hmm. it's kind of funny with something as huge as the Macy's Day Parade of like, You definitely just watch people. It's moving so slowly. You're just watching like the same marching band from some random town in Kansas, like doing the same routine over and over again because they're just marching down the road.
1: Right. And also it's like, how much do you have to like, like what angle does your neck have to be at so that you can look up? It's like when you sit first row at like a movie theater mm. or something. It's like that's not and a it's good not seat. Worth it. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I would like there are cameras, there are helicopters. I assume you know, right? Filming this. I best seat in the house is in my house.
0: Yeah, truly. So I just always thought that concept was interesting, and I love the Thanksgiving Day parade, truly. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I would have any interest in ever like going to watch
1: it. No, me neither. And I think that's beautiful for us.
0: I think so too. That's just because we're on the same wavelength Mm -hmm. and I am grateful for your friendship and for the fact that we're on the same page about never going to the Macy's Day Parade.
1: Well, tell me this. Are we on the same wavelength about pumpkin flavored things? Ooh, I don't know. uh, PSL. So
0: PSL, I never knew what that meant. Until recently,
1: uh, pumpkin spice latte. For those who don't know, yeah. So
0: pumpkin spice latte, I am absolutely loving Paul. Oh my gosh,
1: Who's pumpkin!
0: Paul? Oh, <laughs> I was gonna. I combined pumpkin and fall. Paul. I really do like pumpkin flavored things. I don't like actual pumpkin. Like pumpkin pie okay. is a tough one for me. Anything that's, that's a made. Thing. Yes. Anything, though, that's made with, like, an actual pumpkin puree, I probably don't like. I just like the sweet, Mm -hmm. decadent flavor of a little PSL, of Mm -hmm. a pumpkin, like, bread, a little pumpkin bread. I love
1: a pumpkin loaf. Yeah. This past week, though, however, I've been eating pumpkin cookies mm. and pumpkin ice cream. Like um, like a Tate's pumpkin, not sponsored by Tate's Bake Shop, but- But if you want to, because I, I love gladly. Tate's. Me too. So they have a pumpkin cookie and it's mm. to die for. And then Ben and Jerry's, also not sponsored. They have a limited batch pumpkin cheesecake ice cream, which mm. I'm lactose intolerant. I still ate the entire pint in like two days by myself. It was worth the pain.
0: Yeah, two days. First of all, proud of you. Also, would have just advice for for this season again. Just power through and eat the whole thing in one sitting, so you don't have to go through it for two days.
1: But don't you okay. think?
0: So, don't you think? Just like go sure. for it.
1: Like if you're going to be in pain, might as well be in pain, all at once, and not yeah, yeah, drag yeah, yeah. it out over. Right, that's a great thought, and I wish I had done that. But also, it tastes so good that I was like, I need to stop myself halfway through so that I can experience this flavor palette again tomorrow. Again.
0: Yeah, what a what an amazing self-restraint demonstration that to. is. You
1: have I, to. I couldn't.
0: If... I, I really couldn't. I've never tried the Ben & Jerry's or the Tate's. I didn't know Tate's had pumpkin-
1: They might be Flavored new. cookies. They are great.
0: Well, I also have to go to, like, specialty grocery stores for some things because uh-huh. even though Tate's is, like, a local- Fairly local to Jersey because it's like a Hampton oh. thing, I think. I don't, no, I don't know, but they usually sell them in like cute little boutique stores. Oh, they so sell them at there. Target for me. Okay, well, I guess okay. I gotta go to Target. Um, go to but Target. I've never tried the Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I do like a pumpkin ice cream the times that I've tried it. I don't like cheesecake though, so we'll have to see. Okay. It's we'll to I would see. say it's
1: more pumpkiny than cheesecake, okay. if anything
0: yeah i do love pumpkin and you know what it's basic for a reason and everybody criticizes it for a reason and that's because it's fucking good like sorry
1: you hate things that make people happy i'm sorry that you can't let other people be happy
0: truly i mean like get with the times it's Mm -hmm. good it's sugar it tastes yummy it fills you up it 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 just is lovely
1: yeah listen i'm grateful for the pumpkin food, I'm grateful for Thanksgiving. I'm grateful for our listeners. I'm grateful for you. I am grateful for a lot of things
0: yes, me too what a what a lovely what a lovely thanksgiving gratefulness exercise That was great
1: so if everybody's feeling grateful, if everybody's feeling fall ready. Maybe you're ready for winter. Maybe you're like, get Thanksgiving over with, whatever. We're almost there. We're on the precipice of entering the winter holiday season. So give us like 50 more minutes, if even that, maybe a little bit more. I don't know how long the story is going to go. We'll and see. Let me tell you a story that is very much not so related to Thanksgiving. So when researching topics for my Thanksgiving week episode i knew that i didn't want to do something directly related to thanksgiving i didn't really want to talk about colonists i didn't really want to talk about colonizers i should call them i wanted to focus on indigenous people or an indigenous person someone that was uplifting indigenous voices or just a really badass indigenous person, and I think I found a really cool indigenous person that I've never heard before. I found it in a deep dive through Wikipedia of queer indigenous people, and so this week I'm going to be talking to you about Bia Wachichish, or the Crow Woman Chief.
0: I'm ready. I'm very excited. This is not someone I have heard about either, so I'm ready for this journey.
1: Great. So... Real quick, just to get some sources out of the way, I used for this week's story Bia Wikipedia page, Queer as Facts episode on Bia Wichichish, Edwin Denig's book Indian Tribes of the Upper Missouri on Project Gutenberg, love them, Native American Heroes of History, Five Incredible People from College Express, Rhea Brodel's art and synopsis of Bia Wichichish, 19th Century Indigenous Women Warriors from Montana Women's History Matters, Reclaiming Two Spirits, Sexuality, Spiritual Renewal, and Sovereignty in Native America by Gregory D. Smithers, and I referenced a bunch of Wikipedia pages for definitions and whatnot, and there are some other sources that I will uh, touch upon in the actual story itself. So, Now that we have sources out of the way, I want to run real quick through some disclaimers. First, I want to talk about some acknowledgements. So I am currently living on what traditionally was or is Tongva-Gabrieleno or Chumash land. And Rachel, you're living on Muncie lenape land. And I'll say it for both of us that we honor the ancestors and elders past and present of these groups. If you, the listener, are curious as to what land you're living on, and you don't have to be in the States, this can be anywhere in the world. If you want to know what native land you're living on, you can visit native-land.ca. That's native, N-A-T-I-V-E hyphen land, L-A-N-D dot C-A, to learn more about your specific areas. Secondly, my subject today is called Biawachichish, or that's how I believe it's pronounced. This is not the name that she was born with, but rather a name she acquired later in life. And the colonizers and English people, Americans, directly translated her name to woman chief. And so that's what biawachichish means, is woman chief. That's the direct English translation of the name. I, I think it's nice to just pay respects as much as I can. And it feels like calling her... The anglicized name isn't really accomplishing that. Thirdly, as you may remember from our season one of Historically Really Good Friend, Weewa, the primary source of Biawachich's biography comes from a white man. So the Crow people, which is who Biawachich comes from, are doing the work of restoring and preserving their heritage, culture, and language as seen in the Crow Language Dictionary, which I reference in my research. But a lot of the primary sources that we have are from the point of view of white colonizers, and there's not really many Aboriginal or Indigenous voices that have written extensively on this subject, or at least that I could find. Most sources that I've used and that are out there today take from the original writing of a man, a fur trapper named Edwin Thompson Denig, who spent a lot of time with the Crow tribe and Beowichich specifically, but it's still pretty recognized and as much as it sucks that most of the knowledge we have on the tribes and specific indigenous folks comes from the records of white people. Edwin Denig was nothing short of a racist and misogynistic, but the modern sources have done a great job at extrapolating the important bits and bobs to put a small biography together of Bia which I hope to now relay to you, the audience, and Rachel. Mm -hmm. So Bia or the woman who would eventually be known as Bia is born sometime in the early 19th century, Historians have placed her birth somewhere around the year eighteen oh six, but there's no evidentiary support to tie her to a concrete month or year. She's born into the Aani or Atsina tribe, which translates in English to the white clay people, but they're known today and recognized in the United States by the name Grovan, which is French meaning big bellies. French colonizers upon meeting this tribe use the term Grovant because they mistakenly interpret the native sign language that is used in the Great Plains at this time. One of the English interpretations of A'ani is waterfall, so it's possible the tribe is signing like a flowing river and then curving down over the waterfall Mm -hmm. so it looks like a big stomach. And so that's how we get this Grovant name meaning Big Belly.
0: Wow. Genius. But I smartest minds. Well, yet again. Right. <laughs>
1: right. So Bia is born into the Grovant people in what is now known as North Central Montana. And her birth name, her Grovant name, is entirely unknown. In the book, Reclaiming Two Spirits: Sexuality, Spiritual Renewal and Sovereignty in Native America by Gregory D. Smithers, who's a historian of Native and African Americans. It's stated that Beowichichish from an early age shows signs of having special gifts and displays an aptitude for marksmanship, being highly skilled at killing and butchering buffalo. Now, it's unclear if the author meant that Beowichichish is a prodigy buffalo hunter before the age of 10, but I would have loved to like imagine a young child being like the it buffalo hunter. <laughs> because the next line of the paragraph in this book about Be Witchy Chish is as she approached puberty, which like one hundred percent makes it sound like she's taking down buffaloes when yeah. she's like single digits. Right. This Just, like on anim- her
0: own. She's getting picked right. first for the buffalo hunting teams.
1: Right. And so this little Anecdote, though, proves that she's strong, she's agile, just kind of generally well-rounded. When Biawichich is born, there's a significant amount of intertribal conflict, meaning that various native tribes or communities are engaging in fights or battles for land, food, and other resources. A practice that seems common during these battles is that of Kidnapping. And from the sources I have, it's unclear whether this is common amongst all tribes, but it's something that the one tribe we're going to talk about seems to participate in. So around the age of 10, the Grovant people, Biawachichish's tribe, is attacked by one of their biggest enemies, the Absaluka or Crow people. This war party raids the Grovant land, and Biawachichish is taken prisoner and brought back to the Crow community. Now, the purpose of these kidnappings is murky, at least to me and the authors of the sources I reference. Some say that the kidnappings are to participate in the slave trade with colonizers, although intertribal tribal kidnapping seems to predate colonization. Some say that it's to have their own indentured servants, but either way, after some time with the Crow tribe, Biowichich is adopted by a Crow warrior who then raises her among his people. One story about this adoptive father explains that he adopts Biowachichish to replace a son or sons that he has recently lost to war or capture. And seeing that Biowachichish has these natural abilities at doing the like quote unquote boy things like hunting or fighting or doing just like physical work, he encourages these pursuits and raises her like he would a son. Now, Beewa is raised in the Crow tribe as a young girl and lives the rest of her life as a Crow member. Similarly to Weewa's story from season one, the Crow tribe has three genders. Each gender has expectations in their culture of activities they can do, jobs they can have, tasks they must perform. And so they have the males, the females, and the bate, which is similar to the Zuni term lamna. Bate in the Crow community is a male-bodied person who takes part in some of the social and ceremonial roles usually filled by women in that culture. So it's specifically talking about people that are born as men that take on more feminine parts in their culture. And so a lot of sources call Biowitchish Two Spirit or Bate, but the Queerest Fact podcast raises a really important question of what is the distinction between someone who is Two Spirit, or in this case Bate, and somebody who is a girl and and then a woman who just participates and likes the socially constructed masculine activities, and. We'll never know how Bia Wachichis understood her own gender. That goes, I mean, for everybody in history, <laughs> unless we clearly have proof of them saying, like, my gender is fill in the blank. So there is a possibility that Bia Wachichis is Bate, which kind of roughly translates nowadays to like a queer person, a trans person, a two-spirit person. It kind of has more of an umbrella term, but there's also a chance that she wasn't. We also hear a lot about people born male assuming female roles in society, but there's never really any talk or documentation about people born female and assuming mm. male roles as kind of like a gender thing. Like it always mm-hmm. seems more so that two-spirit people during this time are born male and assume female roles never the other way around. Right. In Bia Wichichis's case. I'll have to look more into that in general. I think it's just really interesting in the trans masculine versus transfeminine representation amongst Native tribes or communities at this time, or in the people that are making these records, meaning white, right. straight colonizers.
0: Right. I would also imagine there was sort of more of a barrier to entry to the more masculine constructed like social events or things that you could participate in like for right. example i'm assuming it is harder to demonstrate that you can participate in something like a buffalo hunt or uh it's any other Fight kind or, of battle yeah. rather than demonstrating like i think that the, it it's sort of like a risk assessment potentially of It would be a liability for you to prove yourself in this situation, Mm -hmm. whereas if you were to practice some of those more feminine roles at the time, maybe cooking, taking care of children, working sort of closer to or around the home and doing things like Mm -hmm. that, that is less of a risk or less of a liability to demonstrate that you could perform those tasks.
1: Right. And one thing also is like when we talk about two-spirit individuals, it's more Mm -hmm. so that the records we have of them will always say like it was a, a male born as a female but they're not one or the other or they're closer to a woman right so right. they'll be like called more like a woman but we never see like a female that is two-spirit being closely identified as a man like it's always people being closely identified as a woman rather than non-binary right. or trans in right. that spectrum and
0: like you were saying too i think that might have to do with an understanding of what two-spirit is that's like a I shouldn't say an understanding more of a misunderstanding because then we're still operating and comparing it to a binary system of which we understand so saying like two-spirit but nearer to right (laughs) closer in proximity to femaleness Mm -hmm. or maleness Mm -hmm. and that may not be the most accurate
1: representation
0: of that but again like that's not something that we have right. probably great information on
1: no no we don't <laughs> so we were born male but then self-identifying as a lamina wore a majority of the time feminine clothing but bea while doing these kind of masculine tasks remains mainly in her feminine clothing as well there are no restrictions placed on her by her father if she wants to wear masculine clothing, but into her adulthood, it's remarked that she chooses to, more times than not, wear her feminine attire. It's also interesting to note that the Crow people never speak out against Bia Wachicis participation in more of the male-centric activities either. So it's kind of more or less them just accepting her for doing these, right. these things. right. And under the guidance of her adoptive father, Bia Wichichish earns acclaim for her horse riding, marksmanship, and ability to field dress a buffalo, which is the killing and butchering I mentioned before. So this is kind of one of the examples where we have different sources saying, like, she was doing this when she was really young. And now mm-hmm. we have someone saying, like, this is when she is earning this kind of acclaim when she's already with the Crow people. right? And... As Edwin Denig, the white fur trapper, would later describe, she could rival any of the young men in all of their amusements and occupations. She is fearless in everything. And we'll get more into Edwin's description of Bioachich in a second, because they meet when she's already an adult, but this definitely felt mm-hmm. like an apt description of her in this like adolescent period. It's unknown as to what age this happens at, but her adoptive father dies and Bia Wichichich assumes leadership of her father's lodge, meaning she assumes the position of parent to some potential adoptive siblings and the head of her household. In various documents, people's level of authority is typically counted in how many lodges they're the head of. Mm -hmm. And population seems to be tracked by number of lodges rather than number of people. But it's unclear as to how many people or families there are in one lodge. And in the Crow dictionary under the entry for lodge, it also says, see also house. So we can assume that lodge just means household. And so she sort of enters adulthood from what I can kind of place, assuming the leadership of her father's lodge. Like I mentioned previously, the time period Chish is born into is burdened with lots of tribal raids and war, and one of the Crow's biggest enemies is the Blackfoot Confederacy, which is a historic collective name for linguistically related groups that make up the Blackfeet people. And the Blackfeet people often side with or partner with the Grovant tribe, which is another Mm. enemy of the Crow people. So sidestepping what I just said, I'll come back to it. The next thing that we know about Bia after taking leadership of the Lodge is the event that started her recognition as a renowned warrior within the Crow community. Bia Wichich, from the timeline I've sort of been able to deduce, is probably in her mid to late 20s at this point. That's my guess. I could be very wrong. And so Bia Wichich and some other Crow people and families are staying at this white trading port. They do a lot of trade with fur and hides with the U.S. government mm-hmm. and with white families. And so this is also likely how Bia Wichich probably meets Edwin Denig because he's a fur trapper as well, so right. that's probably how they'll meet down the line. But she's staying at this trading port when the fort and the surrounding area is raided by a group of Blackfeet, which causes the Crow and white families to take shelter inside of the fort. Mm. The Blackfeet demand someone come out and talk to them, likely to have some sort of combat with them, which none of the white or Crow men volunteer to do. Bia Wichichish is the only one in the fort that's like, I'll go out and talk to them. I'll see what they want. <laughs> and so she goes out of the fort on her own. And as she approaches the Blackfeet, she's fired at. The story goes that Bia Wichich fires back with a gun, killing one, then fires with a bow and arrow, wounding two, and then chases away the remaining men before retreating back into the fort. Not to mention that she does all of this and leaves the battle completely unscathed. Wow. And all of the men are like cowering inside of this fort and she's like single-handedly taking on this entire raid party by herself.
0: Yeah. They're like trying to see how much stock they have there. Like how long they can last in this fort. And she's like, stop it. Let's just do it.
1: Let's get it over with.
0: I'll do it myself. (laughs) If I have to,
1: and I guess I have to. And so... After her victorious display of bravery, Wichichish is granted the full rights and privileges of a Crow warrior and is hailed amongst her people as such. At this time, to become a war chief, people, meaning men, had to complete four tasks. Touch a living enemy and escape, steal an enemy's weapon, successfully lead a war camp, and sneak into an enemy camp and steal a horse. And so in response to the Blackfeet raid, and to kind of just generally retaliate against the enemy, Bia for many years to come, gathers crow raid parties and attacks Blackfeet settlements, often returning with the prize of stolen horses and enemy scalps.
0: Wow. I mean, very impressive, but also just that list delivered in that way kind of makes it seem like a frat initiation or like what you imagine like a movie frat initiation of like, you have to steal the other team's Uh mascot.
1: (laughs) It's like, let's go steal this thing and be victorious and we'll be the reigning champs. Yeah. And so... (laughs) In one account, as told in the episode by Queerest Fact, one of Chichish's first raids against Blackfeet consists of her and a group of Crowmen stealing about seventy horses in the dead of night. Oh, which wow. is so—that's more
0: than a frat. That's, that's more than a frat initiation. That's, that's seriously impressive.
1: Right. There's. I. I don't know what source they used for this story, so I can't. confirm Confirm. how many people there were there how many crow people were a part of this raid but they go and they steal this like flock this herd of horses
0: wow like that could be its own oceans 11 franchise just like the uh, the sheer amount of Ho- like, right. that's, a, uh, sorry, I just can't get over it. It's not like an item. Like, that is right. a living.
1: <laughs> no. no, that is, yeah. right. And in the dead of night, that's not something that you just, like, go and, like, take, it, like, a frat paddle or whatever, uh, right? You're, right. Like, these are live animals that are probably neighing and kicking and bucking and doing all these things right. to strangers oh, that are stealing oh my gosh.
0: Them. Right.
1: Right. They also discuss Joe Medicine Crow, a Crow war chief and historian who lived until 2016, and his explanation for what these sort of raids had in Crow culture and history. And the explanation is that these raids aren't for the purpose of gaining land or gaining individual riches, but rather more of a sport for young men and a way to gain a reputation or prominence within the Crow community. And again, having a chance at maybe becoming a war chief. And Mm -hmm. so when I say sport, I don't want it to come across that these men are like on a team that just go and like raid these camps for fun. And it's like. A frat thing like these are battles, and people are very much getting hurt and wounded and dying and risking lives to do this. But it is more for a purpose of the recognition and rising through the ranks in their own community, it seems like.
0: Yeah, it's an important element of their hierarchy or their rite of passage for their warriors. Right. And so it obviously serves a purpose. It's not just like a flippant. No. Like, hey, you guys bored. want to go Let's over? Let's go do this. Yeah, right. right. right Let's
1: go right. prank everyone. Let's, yeah.
0: Right. Panty rain. Right. Like, that's right. not no, it. Not like...
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so for her successful war efforts and, you know, leading these band of warriors against enemies and constantly winning, coming away unharmed, Bia Chichish is accepted to represent her lodge as a Bajacha, or Chief in an official capacity. From this, she gets the name Biawechichish, or Woman Chief, when white colonizers meet her soon after. Mm. So when Edwin Denig meets Biawechichish, I'm going to place her around the age of 30 or in her 30s, I say this because sources say that Edwin knows Bia as this chief figure for about 20 years, and spoiler alert, she dies sometime in her 50s. So about after 10 years of living with the Crow Nation and knowing Bia Edwin Denig writes about her in this book that he's been writing. And the book catalogs all of the tribes he's come in contact with when selling his furs and while his accounts of other Native Americans are grossly racist, Biawachichish is kind of this exception in his writings. Mm. So, from his book, here are a few excerpts of how he describes Biawachichish. One, she is likewise a good huntress, both on foot with gun and on horseback with bow and arrow. Two, she keeps up all the style of man and chief, has her guns, bows, lances, war horses. In appearance, she is tolerably good-looking, has been handsome, is now about 40 years of age, and still goes to war, which is, like, still kind of a rude description. (laughs) Three, although dressed as a woman, the devices on her robe represent some of her brave acts. Four, she has often attacked and killed full-grown grizzly bears alone. And five, this extraordinary woman is well-known to all whites and Indians.
0: Okay, so uh, I'm sorry. I'm just taking it all in because it yeah, yeah. feels like listening to it now is like backhanded compliments all around. But understanding the context in which this was delivered, I imagine it was it was probably higher praise than as it's it's coming across at this time. But it's 1000%. like
1: thousand percent.
0: It's like she can hang with the guys, and also she's hot.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. Like, Did you hear number f- four? Do you hear number four? She has often attacked and killed full-grown grizzly bears alone. Sorry, what?
0: And so it's like that in and of itself is a pretty insane, insanely interesting, amazing accomplishment. Like you don't have to be like, yeah, and have you seen her? Like she's not too bad to look at also. She's like, and she's aging. Like (laughs) she's 40.
1: I I think he meant it that like she's 40 and still is going to war like that's pretty impressive well, right but, but like, again the <laughs>
0: other side of that is like she's 40 yeah. which is like so it's more impressive right that she's going to war which like yeah i guess i mean i'm 24 and right. cannot Would withstand a grizzly bear nor war right but but i i do think i mean of course i think it it is an important documentation about about indigenous people and and what their legacy was mm-hmm. and their impact and and the way that they were like cultivating the land and their experience and all of those things like right. in in that regard it's valuable to have this testimony but of course it's not it, it could be I, better
1: <laughs> right it's not a glowing you know high praise document of her saying be what she jish is you know the like person of the month and hears right. all of the amazing things about her. I'm gonna read some it's more, like, but he definitely Oh, please do. He literally writes about her in like fragments, in like little paragraphs. It's not like he's writing an extensive biography mm-hmm. about her. So what he has is what we have.
0: And and that is the important piece, but I think the reason it feels so icky is because it's it is a it's offensive because it's like both indigenous people and women should not be able to do or act like this. And so that's why this is notable to me because this woman and this indigenous woman is, is reflective to me of someone who's accomplished and civil and all of those things. And like,
1: we mentioned
0: this in like the Lewis and Clark episode of like once it was documented that they returned to, quote, civilization. Right. And so it's like, it's like, that. that's the lens of which this is coming across. Right. Of like, for being an indigenous woman, this is shocking.
1: Right, but I mean, th- and yes, 1000%. Think about the time that this is written. This is the m- mid 1800s. Like, this is not, you know, th- they're, they're still westward expansion. Like, these are not people that they're, com- right. like, they have a very gross idea of indigenous peoples and native americans like this is for him we're
0: manifesting our destiny right now right (laughs) and that's all we can ask
1: for but he's also like supposedly pretty cool with the the crow people but he's still a dick in writing all these like racist things so for the fact that he's kind of putting her in this at least a little bit of praise is like right okay edwin
0: Right, like, like a, it was impactful to him enough right. to acknowledge her in this. Right,
1: so, Like, yeah, I yeah, don't know, yeah. maybe it's a little crush. I don't know what it is. But he, like, right. he treats her like, Ooh. I don't know if he's scared of it's, her. I don't know.
0: Right. It's high praise, seemingly, from him.
1: Right. When it's, uh, for us, like, okay, I, <laughs> right. I could have done better. <laughs> Just a little bit. And so, through the years that Denig knows Bia Wachichish, she lives up to all that's written about her. Within years, Biawichich rises through the ranks, becoming the third highest leader in a band of 160 lodges, becoming one of the first and only women, or two spirit persons, at this time to be given a position of the Crow's Council of Chiefs. Oh. As Denig writes, she quote has fame, standing, honor, riches and as much influence over the band as anyone except two or three leading chiefs end quote and so there are three or so different subgroups of crow people but she becomes the third highest within her group of crow her Mm -hmm. her band within her band and according to edwin denig had she not been adopted had she been born crow it was very likely that she might have had a chance at reaching an even higher position. So it seems like mm. for all intents and purposes, because she was not born into the Crow people, she's gone as high as she can. She's reached the Yay. highest honor for someone that is not native Crow. Another part of Bia Chichish's identity or life That leads us to why we're talking about her on this podcast, other than possibly being two-spirit, is that Bia then goes on to marry not one, but four wives, which increases her wealth and the prestige of her lodge. Denig writes about how no man would take Bia as a wife, so we're seeing that backhanded... (laughs) you know kind of uh commentary from denig that's not really (laughs) needed you know maybe for the fact that she has too much status or power or maybe they're not wanting to compete with her or think that she and these are his words not mine that she would be too difficult to manage as a wife (laughs) and then he says quote with the view of turning her hides to some account by dressing them and fitting them for trading purposes she took herself a wife ranking as a warrior and hunter she could not be brought to think of female work it was derogatory to her standing unsuited for her taste strange country this where males assume the dress and perform the duties of females while women turn men and mate with their own sex end quote
0: okay (laughs) do you wanna do you have something to say just like once again i just i don't know again okay this will just be my general statement. Okay. Oh important testimony, important documentation, really unfortunate that this was the person to document right. and offer testimony. Right. So like, that's just not, it's not great all around, um, but we know it now and we can interpret it using our critical right. lens in today's <laughs> right. day. Right. And I think
1: <laughs> it's important to note that too. So Wiwa is born basically a few years after Bia Wichichich dies so they okay. miss each other
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so remember that Weewa becomes really good friends I guess you could call it with Matilda Cox who is the right. anthropologist and the way that she writes about Weewa is an entirely different way mm-hmm. than how Edwin Denig is writing about Biawa Chichish. so there is maybe a little bit of difference in you know the few decades to come not saying right. that they were talking about wewa as you know this beautiful right. portrait of them they still kind of had this like exhibition type look at yeah, this like person like tokenizing yeah. like
0: anthropological study type vibe to it
1: right right so i mean there's obviously always going to be trouble with the way that colonizers have talked about indigenous peoples but there is a very clear distinction of how the conversation is with natives around this time versus how they are with wewa
0: right definitely yeah i can see that now that you mention it but again like having a record of these things happening is important so and important. so we will we will just i will try to ignore face value ignore the other little color commentary yeah. that's added <laughs> you're gonna
1: have to and okay so back to Bia Wichichich's wives, wives, not wives. So <laughs> there's a potential that these wives are to be seen more as, you know, workers in Bia Wichich's lodge, more of a practical or economic relationship kind of partnership or maybe as like an indentured servant. But the use of the phrase mate with their own sex is very suspect to me. Mm -hmm. So by this point, Beowichich is likely near or in her 40s. And the wives are likely a lot younger women doing a lot of the prep work for the sale of these animal hides. But the label of wives is what makes me believe that there's more going on that's ever documented. And Again, like we're saying, basically all of this information that we have about Beowitchy Chish and her wives comes from Edwin Denig, a heterosexual white male in the nineteenth century, that I'm sure didn't take into consideration queer identities and the ability to be an actual romantic interest or feelings which is why he positions it as a practical partnership and not a loving relationship and it's also possible that he can't even really comprehend these different cultures and these different genders Mm -hmm. and is still kind of like what the fuck is going on like i don't which
0: feels likely which is probably (laughs) the
1: case but in general be a does everything typical of a man leading war parties, hunting, marrying multiple women. And I don't know if I said this before, but polygamy is seemingly accepted uh, and maybe standard in Crow culture amongst men. So there's a possibility that it was her just kind of following suit of her equals, which were the men of her tribe. And that's all we know or can really speculate about Biwichich's wives and their marriages. Mm-hmm. Bia continues her war and chief career well into her 40s and is involved in the 1851 Treaty of Fort Laramie, which is a treaty between the United States and various Native tribes, acknowledging Native land and setting boundaries between tribes. In return, the U.S. was guaranteed safe passage for settlers on the Oregon Trail and allowed roads and forts to be built in their territories and the Native tribes would receive a stipend also in return. So that's kind mm-hmm. of what that is, and she had a, a big part of that for the Crow people. Beowachichish is instrumental in also negotiating peace with the Grovant tribe, of which she was born into, and also notably the Crow's top two enemy. And so after this treaty assigned their peace for a few years, the Grovant community invites other tribes to come visit their settlements and be welcomed as honorable guests, entertained, given gifts, etc., really wowed. And... Bia Wachichish accepts this offer for the Crow people. And despite trying to talk her out of going on this trip, Bia Wachichish insists that she goes. I believe mm-hmm. she spoke the Grovant language. And so she kind of saw herself as like a delegate for right. the Grovant Crow relationship that was forming. And so she's like, I go- I'm going, we're going on this. And so Bia Wachichish and a small group of Crow people travel to the Grovant Area, But before they can get to the actual settlement, they run into a group of Grovant people. And so this group of Grovant people don't know who Biowachichish is just yet. And so they welcome mm-hmm. the group and are incredibly hospitable. But shortly after, they learn that Biowachichish is and Known for being an incredible warrior and for attacking the Grovant and killing their people mm. in battle. And so Bia Wachichish and her group are ambushed and she's killed in 1854 at Fort Union, a fur trading post by the Grovant, the very tribe she was born into.
0: Mm.
1: Now, incredibly quickly before we end, because that's kind of all we have of Bia life. She's killed at this fort by the Grovant people But there are other accounts of a female crow warrior by a man named James Beckworth, an emancipated slave, fur trapper, mountain man, and explorer. That's what he calls himself. So definitely (laughs) thinks a a lot of what he's doing out there. And he claims to have lived with the crow, but also rise through the ranks and become their number one chief for a considerable time, which doesn't Mm -hmm. seem likely because Beowichich was not inherently or or was not um
0: she was not born into the crow tribe and right, therefore be, that's the same reason why she couldn't why she
1: couldn't rise rise to that the status. To the top. So it seems a little shaky his story. James Beckworth also writes about a woman named Barciampi, also calling her Pine Leaf, which many considered being Beowachichish. Mm. The details of Barciampi's life don't entirely match up with Beawacheechish's only really that these two women both went to war. It's now obviously known that Beckworth's account is greatly exaggerated, if not entirely fictional, so this this Pineleaf person might not be real. Beckworth claims to have met Pineleaf while living with the Crow in the 1820s. He writes that upon her twin brother's death, Pineleaf vows to kill a 100 men before she would marry. He also claims to have a romantic relationship with this woman and Mm -hmm. that once she kills the 100 men, he proposes to her multiple times with her saying no every time. Until one time he proposes and she finally accepts on the condition that she will marry him when the pine leaves turn yellow, which he then Mm -hmm. realizes later that pine needles are always green so that she's never going to marry him.
0: Yeah, I mean, that feels like a good, compelling story.
1: Sounds fun, right?
0: It sounds like an interesting tale.
1: Sure. And Rachel, you're not the only one that's skeptical about this story. And (laughs) among those challenging Beckworth's account is Bernard DeVoto, a historian, who wrote that Beckworth is reliable, save for three areas, numbers, romance, and his own importance. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I mention pine leaf because in most of my research, everything says, like, be a aka pine leaf. So these mm. people have sort of been fused into one. There's heavy speculation, you know, about pine leaf's existence. So if you do... Do more research about Bia Wachichish, just be cautious about what information you may find. Mm. And so that's the story of Bia Wachichish, also known as Woman Chief of the Crow People.
0: What a really, really wonderful story. I'm so glad you told it today. I was shocked kind of consistently, and I feel like this touched on a lot of different really important pieces on the podcast that we've talked about and hope to continue talking about mm-hmm. not only identity but like the historical pieces of it like right. the way that we have to or are forced oftentimes to interpret
1: mm-hmm.
0: different identity and different environments and all of those things and this was just very very interesting thanks and so thank you
1: i hope you can now see what i meant before we started recording, when I was texting you saying that this was going to be a long story that was very vague, but also very specific and had a lot of moving pieces and a lot of people and a lot of parts. <laughs> it was
0: Yes, I fully understand, but you very well executed. You did a thank wonderful you. job. Oh, thank and you. it was it was very flowy. And if I did a flowing gesture, mm-hmm. maybe you would interpret that <laughs> as, as a being big belly. A large belly. <laughs> okay, well,
1: everyone. Go learn about what native land you're on. Go see what you can do to help indigenous peoples wherever you may live. If you are in the U.S., have a great Thanksgiving. Eat a lot of food for us. And we will be back next week.
0: See you soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode 39 of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about a woman warrior. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes stealing 70 horses a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And as always, to see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreally. And on Instagram, you can also DM us your personal stories. You can also send them to historically really good friends at gmail.com. Have a very happy Thanksgiving and we hope to see you again next week. Goodbye.